As we consider that very question, what child is this? We turn our attention to Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 39 and continuing to verse 55. Please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Father, having heard this word read in the presence of your people, we now with anticipation attend to this word, and we would ask for the shining light that comes through the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit, who alone is the interpreter of this word to our hearts, taking its truthfulness and its meaningfulness and applying its truth and meaning to us, that we might not just know it, but that we might be changed by it, and that the fruit of this word might be part and parcel of our lives. Father, we come as beggars begging bread. We come as sons and daughters accepted by our King. We come looking to you who gives all good gifts. Come now and give us the gift of your word. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. You've likely had the experience, as I have, on a number of occasions of coming up to a family member or maybe to a friend with what you believe to be good news, exciting news. News of a budding romance, news of a new job or vocation, news of accepted into a particular program of study, 
news, exciting news, you, you coming with a heart full, ready to share with them with anticipation, maybe the moment's even been built up and anticipation of what it is you're going to share is, is there. And then you share the news and it's pretty clear by the look on their face that what was good news to you wasn't necessarily good news to them. That as you look at their face and as they begin to question all about this news that you've just given to them, it becomes clear that this good news for you is a word of concern for them. They have the, what are you thinking look on their face. And they begin to drill in with a series of questions when in fact what you thought was needed was a few congratulations. And it becomes clear that they have another way of looking at this so-called good news. Uh, Christianity is a religion that tells us not merely what it is to believe, that, that is the truth of the matter, but it also tells us about how we should respond to that truth. What should be our heart's reaction to the receiving of that particular truth, whether it's grief over the nature of sin, whether it's anger over the nature of injustice, whether it's joy over the beautiful story of our redemption. God calls into being not just the recognition of the truth, not just principles and ideals that we can lodge away unmoved in our mind, but he gives to us commands of response. And the reason for that is, is that Christianity is, is not primarily just principles or, or ideals or, or values as it is sometimes described. Christianity is, is summed up in news. And news that can't be subjected to merely the, the spin of someone's presentation. It tells us it's gospel. That is, it's good news. And it should be received with the manner of good news. As the angels, when they broke into the night sky, as the shepherds were keeping watch over their flock, they brought good news of great sorrow? No, good news of great joy. They told you how you should feel about this. What you should, what you should do in response to this. This was a news of joy. When we look at this passage in Luke chapter 1, we see several responses. All of them in some way, shape, or form contributing to this good news of great joy. These three responses, particularly that I want you to see in the context of these verses, teach us so much about what the spirit of Christmas is all about, what the meaningfulness of Christmas is all about. The three responses in the text that's before us are simply these. There is a leap there is a shout, and there is a song. There's a leap, and there's a shout, and there's a song. And in each of those responses, we're getting to the very nature of the joy that is to mark the Christmas season. I want to start with this leap. The angel who had come to Mary and announced in just the previous passage that she was to have a child... Mary, filled with excitement, filled with expectation, packed up her things and immediately hit the road 
to head to that little town in Judah where Zechariah and Elizabeth lived. As the text actually opens up, it's Mary entering the house of Zechariah. Zechariah at this point has actually been struck mute, as you'll remember. So you'll see he doesn't say much in the context of this passage. But it's more Elizabeth and Mary who are engaging with one another. And it's Elizabeth who's six months pregnant with John. That John. John the Baptist. The one who is called to prepare the way of the Lord. And as Mary enters across the threshold and her voice is heard, we're told that little John in the womb leaps with excitement. Now we might ask the question, what does this leaping really mean? How should we understand it? Well, I I think I indicated it just a little bit with regards to the calling of who John is. This little baby in utero, in Elizabeth, is a prophet. He he is, as Jesus will later call him, the greatest among all of the men, all of the prophets of old. He is the one who has been called to prepare the way of the Lord. And in the context of this passage, you know what's remarkable? Is he's already doing that with his leap. Some of the commentators, as they look at this passage, actually note in varying translations that this leap is sometimes translated a leap with joy. Now, I'll have you know, the the joy, the the with joy part's not in the original language. It's not in the Greek. You'll look in vain to find it. But the with joy actually maybe gets to the spirit of the text, though not the specific content. For it's John who has now come in meeting Jesus also in utero with Mary. For the very first time he has come to meet the one who is his life. Genuinely, really. In a way that's unique. We would say that as a believer, Christ is my life. But John, that was true of John in in an even deeper and richer way. He was the singular prophet That the Lord had chosen to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he would be the prophet who would live his entirety of his life in service to Christ. In fact, at the end of his days, it would be his head on the platter that the king called for. Why? Because he was devoted to his calling of following Jesus. And preparing the way of the Lord. You see, when we see the leap of John in the womb, you know what we're actually hearing? Just a little bit. is the message of John. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He can't help but leap. For the Savior who has come to redeem the world has just entered his home. Now, as that leap happens in the text, almost instantaneously, a shout comes forward in the text. And this shout is given by uh, Elizabeth. We're told in the very next verse there in Luke chapter 1 that Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaims with a loud cry. Now, some of you ladies are thinking, I bet she exclaimed with a loud cry. She just had a somersault performed inside of her. And here she is now exclaiming with a loud cry. No, no, no. This is not some some physical reality that we're describing. This is a, a spiritual movement. 
that has happened inside of Elizabeth. It's after the filling of the Holy Spirit. That's the note of the text. It's not after just the leap of John. It's the filling of the Holy Spirit. What happens? She exclaims with a loud cry. It's about as strong as you can say it in the Greek. This is, a, this is an outburst. This is a woman who is exploding with excitement. And what we see happens as she's filled with the Holy Spirit is that on the spot, she becomes a kind of prophetess. She, she declares a glorious statement about who Mary is. Maybe in some sense, maybe faithful to what it is we're seeing here. A kind of mother of John preparing the way even as John prepares to prepare the way. A prophetess who says, blessed are you among women, speaking of Mary, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Do you hear the astonishment in her voice? What, what, would have, what, is, what is this gift that I would have the privilege of the mother of my Lord entering in across my threshold? Blessed are you, Mary. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. It's really quite remarkable. It's a remarkable thing for Elizabeth to say. For she's experiencing at this very moment the very power and blessing of God. She who was called barren for decades on end, who's never had a child, is now six months pregnant for the, for the very first time. Something that she had longed for and had undoubtedly believed that would never happen. Now through the gift of God, John the Baptist, the greatest of all prophets, is dwelling Within her. And as Mary comes to visit two, two women with children here, it would be understandable if Elizabeth sort of thought, well, you know, what's happening to me is pretty awesome. Um, it would be understandable if she would say, I want to guard a little jealously the excitement of what I've been waiting for for decades and of which Mary didn't even expect to happen. Um, that, that she would have Mary come in the door and go, Mary, Mary, guess what's going on with me? But that's not what happens. We see a woman in, enraptured with the promise of the glorious gospel inhabiting Mary, the fulfillment of what the Old Testament groans for, a Messiah. As she sees Mary and she knows the reality of what is happening inside of Mary, as her own child leaps at the sight of Jesus. She says, blessed are you and the fruit of your womb. Why is it granted to me that you would even come here and abide in this place? It's a beautiful picture because so often in settings like this, when let's just say we have, we have two women. This would never happen, of course, just completely theoretical. We have two women who are pregnant and they meet together and they compare notes and as they compare notes, they're subtly inside kind of going, yeah, I'm doing it better than you. I'm taking care of my baby well. And, I'm, and it, it's very quick for rivalry to become in moments like this or tension, fleshly. Kind of, it's, isn't it clear that the Lord is present here in this passage? He's made these women utterly forgetful. Of themselves. 
And they have been captured in remembrance and in the beauty of who God is and what he's doing. Blessed are you, Mary. And you think that Mary might just stand back and go, you know what, I am awesome. Um, now that you mention it, I, I, I want to bask in the glory of that for just a minute. But that's not, that's not what we see at all from Mary. She goes immediately from the blessing that is received from Elizabeth to blessing the Lord. It's as if there's a, there's like there's a chain of blessing. One passing blessing onto the other and the other blessing till it finds its ultimate culmination and its end and its object in God himself. That's what we see happening in this text. From leap to shout to song. And Mary here begins to give what would become known as the Magnificat. Right there in verse 46, my soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices within me. What a beautiful word. My soul magnifies the Lord. My soul is making large. You know, just as we would take that magnifying glass off the shelf or out of the drawer and we'd put it up next to the Tylenol bottle so we can even see what it says because we can't read it otherwise. And we'd put it up, gives the bottle and makes the writing large so it's actually, in a very real sense, it's what it's what Mary is saying. I, I, my soul is magnifying. It's making large God. Now as we, we say it that way, let's be quite clear. Is, is Mary making God larger than, than he is? No. In a term of speaking, what we're saying is her soul is apprehending the greatness. Her soul is seeing, it's dawning upon her in a fresh and mighty way of the greatness and the immensity of who God is. Her soul magnifies the Lord. He is huge in her mind's eye. Her field of vision has been captured by His greatness. That's the, that's the power of this text. That's the call of what this moment is for every one of us. You, you might wonder yourself, why in God's scheme of things, why would He gather people together once a week to to do the things that we do, to sing and to pray and to read the word and then to listen to this guy drone on forever and ever about various things in the word. Why would we do that? That our souls might magnify the Lord. It is my earnest prayer in the early hours of Sunday morning, often making slight tweaks here and there on a message and to praying about what the Lord might be pleased to do that the experience of our time together would be that the Lord is so great and so glorious in your vision and in your mind's eye that everything else in this world grows strangely dim in light of His glory and grace. Do You see, that's the heart of worship. That's the heart of worship. When our souls get to the place where the writing has become large and we can see the glory of who God is. It makes sense then why as we look at this text. Why Mary. It fills this prayer full of scripture. Maybe you're thinking in your back of your mind. How did she just like come up with this. Like off the top of her head. As she comes into uh, Elizabeth's house. Where she didn't come to it off the top of her head. In fact all of the phrases. Verse by verse. From 46 all the way to 55. Are in some ways borrowed from the Old Testament. These are phrases from, from the Psalms, from the prophets. 
And maybe even most richly from 1 Samuel chapter 2 in Hannah's prayer for a child. In fact, I want to encourage you to go back in Samuel this afternoon and just look at Hannah's prayer and longing for a child and look at Mary's Magnificat. You'll see tremendous parallels. What that tells us is that Mary was prepared in heart for worship through the Word. She knew her scriptures. She knew her scriptures. When she came to a point to see what it is that the Lord was doing, she, didn't, she wasn't at a loss for words. She didn't just, oh, I hope I'm creative in the moment. She pulled on the reservoir of God's Word. She had it there sitting within her. It had been vested there. And she took those rich words and she put them together in a song of rejoicing unto the Lord. How many times have you been with someone who's been deeply encouraging to you? Maybe it's a counselor. Maybe it's a, it's a fellow church member. Maybe it's a longtime mentor. But as you come to them and your heart is sorrowing and it's struggling with various things or it's rejoicing and it's trying to find a way to, des- to describe it that would encapsulate it in some way and they... Start quoting some Bible verses just as they listen to you. They just start quoting some Bible verses and you go, oh yeah, that's it. That's it. That's, what, that's, what, that's it. That's what the Word is there for. The Word is there to, to match what it is that the Lord is doing in our lives. It's there to connect us to the work of the Lord and what He is accomplishing in our lives. Here, the covenant promises, descriptions from Isaiah Psalm 34, Psalm 102, Hannah's prayer. They're they're all just drawn on here. They're the resources of this prayer. Knowing the Word of God and having the Word of God hid in your heart becomes the impetus from which deep heart worship of the Lord comes. It's the language of worship. It's the vocabulary of worship. It's the truth of God for you. Now, if you look closely at Mary's prayer after she expresses the, the, the magnification of her own soul of God and her rejoicing in the Lord of her Savior, there's actually four different M's that I think kind of hang together in this, this prayer, this song to the Lord. And the, and the first one is this word mindful. Mindful. You, you see it. In verse 46, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. He has looked on the humble estate of his servant. The NIV actually translates the language looked on as mindful. It can be the language of remember or to call to mind. It's an exercise of memory. Here's the astonishment that Mary's experiencing. As I look out at the greatness of who God is, as I know His covenant promises from the Old Testament and the longing for a Messiah that He has promised to send to His people, and now the Lord has given that Messiah to me. He has looked upon me in my humble estate. I cannot believe He has been mindful. He has taken me in. He's considered me. I would argue that some of, the, some of the ways in which we experience worship most deeply is when we ponder the fact that the God who threw the galaxies together is the God who's mindful of you. 
He's mindful of you. Do you believe, even as you sit here this morning, that at the right hand of the Father in heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ lives to make intercession for you? Every prayer that you offer, God hears. Every silent groaning that no one else in this room knows is being interpreted by the Holy Spirit into the throne of grace. That the God who is holding every atom and molecule together, who is casting every wave upon the seashore, and every twist and turn of providence and history for now thousands and thousands upon years, He, in this moment, is mindful of you. Now, as you take in the reality and the truthfulness of that moment, what does it do? It makes your jaw drop. It's astonishing. Hear the astonishment of Mary. For he has looked on my humble, the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. She can't believe of all of the people that the Lord would look to. He'd look to her. He would look to her. Think of it. Brothers and sisters, those of you in Christ today, trusting in him alone for your salvation, he has made you a son daughter. He has chosen you and he has set his love upon you. He has looked upon your humble estate. Not many of us were rich or come from great pedigree. None of us are worthy of his presence and yet he looked upon us in our humble estate. And he's drawn us into a relationship with himself. That's worthy of our pondering. That's worthy of of us sitting in until our soul magnifies the Lord. Until the bigness and the glory and the greatness of God strikes upon us afresh. As she considers the mindfulness of God, the second M that she gives us his might. If you'll look there in verse 49, notice what she says. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And then she goes on in verses 51 to 52. He has sown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty or rulers from their thrones. The rich he has sent away hungry. Notice that the stations of life that she's noting here. The people who are high and mighty, the rulers, those who run nations, those who are rich, who have all that they could ever want, those who in their own minds may be neither of these things, but are very prideful and think they are of these things. God says those are nothing to him. He brings those down. The, pride he's, the prideful he scatters. He disbands them. To those who are rulers who we would consider strong, he he brings them, them low. He humbles them. For those who have a lot and, and, and of which we and the world would look to with regards to high station, he sends those away hungry as, as if they have nothing. You see, as he's putting it together, he's, she's reflecting upon who's the kind of person that this child has come for. Well, this child has come first as a warrior, she says. He's mighty. That's not unlike the passage we looked at last week from Isaiah 9. This child who's going to be a ruler, whose government is going to be upon his shoulders, one who is going to be victorious, whose reign will be full of peace. But it's going to be a peace because he's going to come with a sword. 
He's going to strike down his enemies. And what this is showing us is that those who are proud, those who are powerful, those who have plenty, tend to be those who are sufficient in themselves, who trust in themselves, who look to themselves, who care about themselves. And those are not the kind that the Lord Jesus Christ came for. He came for those like Mary. Those who are poor, hungry. Those who are of humble estate. Those who are helpless like Israel. The smallest among the nations as he reminds them in the book of Deuteronomy and other places in the Old Testament. I didn't choose you because you were great. Let's be quite clear there. You're not much to look at. I chose you because I've set my love upon you. And because in your weakness, my glory will shine all the brighter. That means if we're in this room, we shouldn't put on airs for being in this room. Um, you're, you're here probably because, well, there's not, there's not much to commend other than Christ about you. He's drawn you here. And that's his glory. He glories in, in weakness. He glories in humility. He glories in neediness because it's there where he meets us. It's there where he shows himself faithful. It's there where he provides. You see, that's the language of 52 to 54. He comes in proportion to the humble. He comes to the hungry. He comes to those who need help. In other words, he comes to those who know that they don't have it all together. Who are not sufficient in themselves. For those who know that they need help. That's who he's come for. I just want you to think about it. One of the most basic realities of the good news of the gospel. Is the fact that Christ has come for those who know that they need him. He's come for those who need him. His effectiveness in terms of the power and the work of his grace is for those who cry out to him in their need. Neediness is a prerequisite for the good news being good. It's a prerequisite. It's part of the work that God must do in our hearts. So the more that we feel self-sufficient, the more we feel financially secure, occupy positions of power and prestige, the more as we consider the own thoughts of our own heart as people who really have our acts together, the less and less the good news is good. The less the effectiveness of the gospel often settles into such a heart. This is why even in the, the salvation that's depicted here as warrior, and, and maybe you've noticed this in your own life, part of the kindness of what God does is he removes us from those places of power. And he often drains us of financial security and plenty. And he puts us in positions where we're humiliated. So that he can save us. So that we'll cry out to him. How many times have you been on the top of the world and you have thought, man, I'm so needy of God right now. Uh, never. Or just about never. But did you know that the leading priority for God is for you finding your total and complete sufficiency in Him. How does He do that? By often taking apart your life. 
and letting your life be wholly found in him. That's his joy to do that. It's his kindness to do that. You don't want to continue to move into life not recognizing your need for him. And not living from that place of need, constantly asking for his hand and for his provision. You see, that's why in the context of this passage, this mighty begins to move towards that third M called mercy. It begins to move towards that third M called mercy. Right in the middle of this prayer, look at what it says. Verse 50, and his mercy is for those who fear him. From generation to generation. Who's his mercy for? Those who fear him. Do the rulers of the world typically fear him? No, they're the rulers of the world. Do the wealthy often struggle to fear him? No, because they have quote-unquote financial security. Do those who in their own minds are legends, but to the rest of the world, not so much, do they typically fear the Lord? No. And so it's God's mercy, isn't it, that he brings us to a place of brokenness. And he brings us to a place of need. Do you see, actually, his might is a picture of his mindfulness, which leads us to his mercy. See how that works? His might in our lives. His, when, it, when it feels as if he's, he's deconstructing things and actually undoing us and bringing, you know, instead of promotions, demotions at work, instead of growing savings, dwindling savings, when, when, he, when he seems like everything in this life is going wrong, it may actually be, spiritually speaking, the time when everything is actually going right for the first time. Because it's in those moments where the need increases. And we look outside of our own sufficiency to the sufficiency that can only be found in God. Do you see, this is actually the message of Christmas. Why else would the God of the universe, who, by the way, is very rich and, by the way, very powerful and occupies a pretty high position, With lots of prestige. So don't hear me wrong. These things are not bad. Especially if God has them all. But why in such glory. Would he be born in a little outhouse of an inn. In a no name place called Bethlehem. To a slave girl who wasn't even married. To teach us something about the message he's come to give. He's come for the no name. He's come for the person with no place. He's come for the person with no money. He's come for the person with no position. He's come for anyone who knows they need him. Anyone who knows they desperately need him. It's in those moments when you hear the gospel of Christ and your soul is desperate for him where you know what happens? Worship. Worship. Magnification of the soul. That's what happens. That's in many ways why we're here today. To recognize that Christ, when he was on the cross, in his most humble that he ever was, 
um, bleeding on our behalf, going to be buried in a borrowed tomb, that he was actually showing us not just what he's come to do, which is save us. He's showing us who he's come for. He actually became the person that he's come for. The person who never had a place to lay his head. A person who was always rejected. Who in a moment where his disciples always wanted him to take positions of political power, he escaped from the crowds and suddenly and mysteriously disappeared. It's that person that he actually was because it's that person he's actually come to redeem. And redeem he has. Because today, even as we sit in his presence through the power of the Spirit, he occupies all power in heaven and earth. He has been victorious over our final enemies, death being the most foremost. And he has promised to take us where it is that he is and with us build a new heavens and a new earth. Do you see, this story of our downward descent is actually the story of our upward salvation. Because as Jesus climbed that cross, He did it by carrying all of us up to the hill of salvation. And that becomes a reason for which we might leap and shout and even sing. As the message of this glorious gospel begins to dawn on us afresh. So what is God calling you to? He's calling you to repent of your self-sufficiency. What are the ways that you are acting like you've got it together, which is actually the very thing that's keeping you so far from Him? Repent of your self-sufficiency. Confess your neediness of God. Confess your neediness of God. Recognize your desperate condition. And then meditate on His mercy. Meditate on His mercy. Let it wash over you. And into you. Until you worship. Until you find those, those eyes beginning to be damp with tears. And, 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 and a fever pitch of excitement begin to well up in your chest. Until you shout. And you sing. And though no one would ever believe it, you leap. Because the threshold of the living God, your Savior, Jesus Christ, has not just broken into Elizabeth's house. He's broken into your heart. That's what this Christmas is about. It's about us putting ourselves before the Lord until the Lord breaks into this heart. Well, friends, listen, Christmas is not just for kids. Because it's not just about gifts underneath a tree. Christmas is for anyone who feels their need of God and today knows his desperateness and grace and doesn't look under the tree so much as at the tree knowing that in Christ and his sacrifice we are saved. Praise be to his name. Father in heaven, come and work the joy of Christmas into our hearts.
come and peel back the layers of callousness and the cold ears that only hear familiarities. And let us today, as it were, awake as Elizabeth did the moment she heard Mary's voice. And the way Mary did as soon as she heard the blessing of Elizabeth. And the way John the Baptist leaped when he met the one for whom he would give his whole life. Today we're meeting you again, Jesus, here. And the evidence... will be manifest if we have truly met you in soul. For we will be a people who will leap and shout and sing. Because this is the good news of great joy that is for all the people. Meet us right here, Lord Jesus. We ask it in your holy name.